for listening to Kickback. And I know that's very surprised. Welcome to the Kickback. It's CJ. I'm here. The Kickback is a series where we talk to interesting people with interesting stories. If you know anything about me, you know that I am a lifelong learner. So I'm constantly reading, constantly working on things. And I love to share what I've learned with other people. And so today I get to share with you Rebecca Bruff. She is the author of the book Trouble the Water, which is an amazing novel that I recently finished about Robert Smalls. Now, Robert Smalls may be a name that you're not familiar with, but by the end of this podcast, you will be. So Rebecca, welcome. So happy to have you here. Thank you, CJ. I'm excited to be with you and to talk about this. Yeah, so tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Who are you? Where are you from? Okay, I'll try to keep that sort of on the brief side, the short version. We can expand a little bit later if you want to. So, um, so I'm a Texas girl originally. I grew up in, uh, in the panhandle of Texas in a town called Amarillo, where it is uh, flat and dry and brown. <laughs> I lived most of my life in Dallas. Um, there was a time that I lived in the mountains of New Mexico, another time when I was in Colorado, but most of my life was in and around Dallas. I went to high school there and, um, and they did my, my graduate work there and worked um, my, most of my career there. So I'm uh, a United Methodist minister. I'm vocationally, that's my training. That's my background. It took me a while to get to that. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I went to college and kind of bounced around a couple of majors and came out in education. Um, but a bit later, I ended up having a kind of an extraordinary experience in a um, in a service context across the border in Mexico, and, and that changed things for me. So I went to seminary. So for about 25 years, I worked in the United Methodist Church, great big churches in Dallas. They have those big mega churches there, you know. Um, seen them. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I love that work. I, I kind of started out uh, in youth ministry, working with kids, and then sort of a broader education ministry, multi-level education, and, and mostly um, in what in our denomination we call missions, which is uh, generally cross-cultural partnerships, both regionally and, and internationally. And that was really what kind of fed my soul. And, uh, and in some ways, I think it, it was part of my preparation for the, the discovery and the writing of this book, because it introduced me to so many people in so many different places and so many different kinds of life experiences. Um, but about eight years ago, nearly nine years ago now, I was living in Dallas, working in one of those big churches, and the youngest of our five kids graduated uh, from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. So we went to we went to University of North Carolina graduation, and we had a few extra days. And so we thought, well, you know, I've never been to the Low Country. Let's go to let's go see Pat Conroy Country. You know, Charleston, Savannah, the Low Country. So we, we just had a few days and we came down uh, to Beaufort, Beaufort, South Carolina. And um, the folks that are listening that are familiar with Pat Conroy's work probably know that name because he lived and worked here. Um, but it's, it's right on the coast. It's, it's this tiny, beautiful little town, almost exactly halfway between Charleston and Savannah. And the low country is, um, it's truly low country. It's, it's these 
um, big estuary areas where the, the tides come in and, you know, and we see lots of water and then the tides go out and we see lots of grass and it's just gorgeous. Uh, it's green, it's full of, full of all kinds of growing things and birds and completely not what I grew up with in Brown, West Texas. Um, but while we were here on that, that brief little trip, we got on a carriage tour, which is kind of more touristy than I usually do. I usually like to just kind of walk around and figure it out on my own, but we didn't have very much time. And it's a really uh, interesting place. Beaufort was, was founded in 1711. It's one of the, it's the second oldest town in South Carolina. And the history is just layered, layered, layered. You know, the, the Spanish were here and then the French were here and the Spanish came back and the British were here and some of the Revolutionary War battles were here. So we got on this carriage tour to learn a little bit of that. And we, we went all over town and saw old churches and old graveyards with, you know, the graves of, of revolutionary soldiers from both sides of that war and, and the graves of uh, Civil War soldiers from both sides of that war. And we started hearing all these stories. And then we stopped in front of this beautiful, white, small church, Tabernacle Baptist Church. And in the courtyard of that church stands this, I'll have to send you a picture, CJ. It's a, a yeah. bust of Robert Smalls. And the tour director said, this is Robert Smalls. He was born here um, in 1839. He was born enslaved. But in the early years of the Civil War, he commandeered a Confederate warship and he liberated himself and his family. And he came back to Buford and he, you know, was elected to local leadership and then state leadership and then national leadership. And, you know, so she just tells us that tiny little bit of the story. And I'm thinking, why have I never heard of this person? You know, yes. I, I mean, I've been in school a lot. I've read a lot. And my husband's a big history buff and he hadn't heard the man's name. And that, you know, that was intriguing to me. And it was also a little bit distressing to me to, to imagine that someone had that kind of a, a history and an impact. Um, just that little bit that I heard and that we didn't know his name. And so then the tour went on a little bit and it rounded a few corners and it stopped in front of this beautiful old home. And she said, this is where that man was born that I was telling you about. This is where Robert Smalls was born. He was born behind the, the big house in what would have been probably a, a kitchen house of some sort. Um, his mother was named Lydia Polite. She was enslaved by the family that lived in the house. And, and one of the things the driver told us that I was able to, to look up and research and corroborate is that Lydia Polite was 45 years old when she gave birth to, to him um, wow. behind the house that night alone. So that, of course, was intriguing. And then we learned that, you know, that he, um, he'd kind of grown up as sort of a, um, I don't know, it's, it's hard to describe it. He, it was sort of like Moses in Pharaoh's court. You know, the, the family was good to him. They were kind to him in broad terms. They weren't hard, they never punished him. Um, but he was a precocious kid and, and they uh, eventually hired him out in Charleston, which meant that he worked in Charleston and all the money went back to Mr. McKee who owned him. So he went to Charleston and was about 14 years old. And he had several jobs. And while he was there, the Civil War erupted right there in Charleston Harbor. And he probably witnessed some of that. 
Um, and then he'd been working on a, on a cotton steamer that became a Confederate warship. And so at that point, he was enslaved on a boat that was keeping him enslaved. And he had this brilliant and impossible idea of labor, liberating himself and his family by commandeering that boat one night. And he did it. He pulled it off. He, he, uh, he knew all the signals. He was really great on the water. He knew all the channels and he knew all the signals at all the forts. And he took over that boat and he liberated himself and his family and some of the crewmates, um, made it through and beyond all those forts around Charleston Harbor. There were seven of them that he had to get past. And he surrendered the boat to the Union troops out on the other side of the blockade. And uh, they almost immediately put him in charge of that boat on behalf of the Union. He and his family, his crewmates were liberated and he served really valiantly for the rest of the war. Um, there's a, a one, another wonderful book about his, his uh, leadership on the, on the planter, the name of the boat. And he just, I mean, he was just larger than life. And then he came back to Beaufort and all the homes that had been evacuated when the Union soldiers arrived here in Beaufort, all those homes were available for back taxes. So one day he walks up to the tax office and he bought the house that he was born behind. And he raised his family there and he lived there the rest of his life. He, uh, he actually died on the front porch of that house, you know, just literally yards from where he'd been born. Um, he, was, he was elected to local leadership. He became a representative in the state house in South Carolina. And then he was a five-time U.S. congressman. Um, he enacted some extraordinary legislation, the uh, most, I think the most brilliant of which was uh, the ensuring of, of access to education for all the children of South Carolina. And, um, and it was the first of its kind in the country. He sort of invented public education in a way. And, but we didn't know his name. You know, no one had heard his name. Yeah. So that, that was the little snippet of the, of the beginning of the story. Um, we went back to Dallas. I had picked up a couple of books here about the man, but I could only find three. I took them home with me and read what I could, and he just got under my skin. I started Googling, and I started, you know, spending a lot of time in the library and bookstores and trying to find out what I could. And after about three years, I just couldn't shake it. You know, I couldn't shake the man in his story and the and the mystery about why it's not more widely known. And so I had this conversation with my husband and said, you know, I, I think I'm, I think I need to try to write this. You know, I've got to, I've got to either try to tell the story or just forget about it because, because he's with me all the time right now. And I went to the senior pastor at the church where I was working, and I, I told him pretty much what I just told you about the man's story. And he said, you know, I think you're called to write the story and to share it. And we arranged for a sabbatical and my husband and I came to Beaufort for what we thought was gonna be four months. And I learned that maybe some people can, I can't write a book in four months. <laughs> <laughs> and I also learned that I really love this little town and this area and this part of the country. Um, you know, for better and for worse, there's a lot going on here that's really difficult. Um, but it's, it kind of captured my heart. So the sabbatical became a 
sort of an extended leave of absence and I dug in and researched and learned far more than I imagined I could absorb and shared the man's story. So that's, that's kind of how it all happened. That's how it unfolded. That is incredible. And the first thought I had upon learning about Robert Smalls was the same thought you had. How do we not know this man's name? Just hearing the story alone, born enslaved, stealing a Confederate ship, sailing it to freedom, taking over that ship, fighting in the Civil War, becoming, uh, being in the state legislator, being the person to author the bill for compulsory education, the first of its kind in the country. And I go, I have a master's degree and I've never heard this man's name. There is something tragically wrong about that. That that is absolutely the case. And it is it is tragically wrong. And it's a really important part of our history about which I knew very little. Um, I began to sort of sort of peel off the layers and um, and begin learning not only about the the history leading up to the Civil War and the war itself, you know, and I I don't know, our textbooks just don't give us the big picture very well. Um, but I really didn't know anything at all about Reconstruction and what dismantled Reconstruction and the, um, you know, between the end of Reconstruction and, and about 1920, the rise of, of Jim Crow and white supremacy was just startling. That's not in our textbooks, of course. Um, and that's why we don't know the, the man's story. There are a lot of great stories that just got scrubbed or n- never made it in and yeah. deliberately never made it in. You know, when the book came out, I had, I had a lot of interesting conversations. And one of those was, um, it was just pr- barely pre-COVID. And I had a chance, um, sorry, here's my dog helping me out. Um, it's all right. <laughs> I had a chance to, to do some, some uh, kind of book clubs and conversations in various places. I was in Little Rock one day and I was talking with uh, a group of mostly United Methodist pastors and some of their spouses. And I introduced the this, this story and I, I started out by saying, does anyone here know the, the name or the story of Robert Smalls? And this one woman raised her hand, um, African-American. And, and I said, really, are you from South Carolina? Just being assumptive and thinking that's how she knew the story. And she said, no. She said, no, I grew up right here in Little Rock. And until integration, our teachers in our schools, in our black schools, our black teachers were telling us our stories. But Mm. after integration, they all disappeared. And the whole room went, wow. I mean, of course that's what happened, but it, it had, you know, I have so much to learn still. It had never occurred to me that that's what happened. Um, and, you know, I mean, certainly celebrate access to education for everyone everywhere. But to think that that integration actually e- scrubbed stories, you know, and yeah. uh, just so many were just completely suppressed and quieted. Um, and, and Smalls really later in the end of his life, there were a lot of his own 
uh, renown was really quieted. He was he was such a threat to white leadership here in South Carolina that they just, you know, it just got quieter and quieter for him. And um, it's really tragic. It's really tragic. And, and I think the more we uncover stories like this, um, like Harriet Tubman, like so many other stories, the more it kind of it kind of peels back layers for other untold stories and other unsung yeah. stories to be discovered. You know, in my research, I was hearing stories and reading names of people I'd never heard of that were doing unbelievable things. Um, a lot of great stories. But his yeah, it changed my life. His you know he his his life and legacy changed so many lives, really countless, and then it changed mine. 150 years later, and I never saw that. that. (laughs) That's an enduring legacy. I started this organization, Labor Forward. It's a Black history organization, but it's specifically around teaching the parts of history that go untold. So back in 2016, I started traveling the country, giving talks on racial justice and the Mm -hmm. gospel. And one day I'm in Grand Forks, North Dakota. In February, it's super cold. And oh it was horrible it was so I got there and it was negative 12 and on the day I left it was zero and everyone was like isn't it so warm it's amazing (laughs) yeah when the baseline is negative 13 zero feels like heaven but I'm talking to a student and we're talking back and forth and I say something 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 Harriet Tubman something something and his response is Harriet Tubman who's that I'm like wait wait a minute Harriet, you don't know Harriet Tubman? That's Black History 101. If you don't know her, we've got a lot of work to do. So I came up with the idea of creating a Black History calendar. 365 days, a different person, place, thing, event, and Black history. And that's how I found out about Robert Smalls as I was doing research. And as I'm reading his story, I'm dumbfounded. How do we, how is it? There have not been movies made about this man. Right? How are there not more books written about him? So one of my questions for you, I guess, would be, as you were doing research to write this novel, where were you pulling your information about his life from? So that's a great question, CJ, because I felt like when I began, you know, when I first heard the story and picked up a couple of books, there was just so little. You know, I found one good biography, autobiography, no, bi- biography, not autobiography. I found a children's book. I found a, um, a book that kind of chronicled his legislative life. And that was all I could find. And I just thought there, there has to be more. Well, there is more if you come to Buford. <laughs> so, um, so we moved out here and I just started digging around. Our, our local library has a, a really wonderful archives of old history and old papers and old letters and old records. Um, I began digging into those. I began uh, just digging as deeply as I could into to Civil War history because it was, I felt like I'd had kind of a, you know, kind of a series of snapshots, but not really a, a deep dive into that. Um, and then I had, after we'd been here a few months, I had the extraordinary privilege and opportunity to meet Small's great-great-grandson. Which was, How did that happen? I, well, you know, God is good and I was lucky and he's a great man. And so he, um, so his name is Michael Bulware Moore. I want to say a little bit more about him because he's really extraordinary. 
um, but he lives in Charleston and he was the founding president and CEO of the International African-American Museum that's being built in Charleston. It'll probably open next year. Uh, it's built on the site of Gadsden's Wharf there in Charleston where certainly over half of all enslaved people arrived in the United States. Um, it's right across the street from Mother Emanuel Church. So, you know, I knew, I knew that that was happening in Charleston. I knew that he was related to Smalls. But I just happened to see something in our little local paper one day that said that Michael would be in Beaufort. Actually, we have a little sea island here called St. Helena, that he would be at the Penn Center on St. Helena Island um, because they had a, a small display of artwork that featured Robert Smalls, things that people had painted or drawn or a couple of photographs, not very much. But he was here to, to speak about his great-great-grandfather. So I had just learned about the time I heard that he was going to be in town, I had just learned that that Penn Center, P-E-N-N, um, had been the Penn School. It was a school that was started for the enslaved people that were functionally liberated when the Union troops occupied here, but it was still during the war. And so they didn't have many options about where to go and what, what were safe things to do. Um, but a, a school started and it was called the Penn School. And, uh, and Robert Smalls after the war was a, a wonderful supporter and champion of the school. So, so I had just learned that little bit about Smalls in the school. I found out that the great, great grandson would be here speaking about the man at the school. And so I, you know, I was first in line when the doors opened and there was Michael. He's this um, wonderful, gracious man. He's a businessman and um, big, tall guy. And he welcomed me, shook my hand and welcomed me. And, and he said, I'm so glad you're here. And I, I'm sure I, I was just totally starstruck. And I said, I just have the biggest history crush on your great, great grandfather. <laughs> you know, I'm just here to learn everything I can about him. And I was too intimidated and too early in the process and kind of insecure about the whole thing. So I didn't tell him that I was working on a book about his great, great grandfather. Um, but I loved hearing the things that he, that he talked about. And then we talked a little bit afterwards after his presentation. And I said, you know, I'm kind of, kind of working on a project. Um, I, you know, I'd like to talk to you again in the future. And he was super gracious and we you know, traded contact information. And so when the, when the manuscript was ready to go to the, to the publisher, my agent said, I think you should, should send this to Michael. And I, I said, you know, I would love for him to read it, but he's like raising $300 million for a museum and he's a busy man and he's always, people are always asking things of him. And it's, you know, it's, a, it's, it's very true to the historical record, but I, I imagined conversations and interior dialogue and motivations and relationships, you know, those things aren't in the record. I said, I don't, you know, I just don't want to ask that of him. And she said, no, he needs to read it. <laughs> so she sent it to him and he read it and he called and he said, come up to Charleston, let's talk. And it was wonderful. Um, he gave me some really great information to add to it too. I had um, early in the story, I had set his ancestors 
in West Africa, somewhere near Ghana, because my research told me that that was most likely where they had been captured and brought from. Um, but he had, between the time I first met him and the time he read the manuscript, he had done a DNA test and he knew precisely where his ancestors were from. And he told me, wow. and I said, you know, he, he said, they're, uh, they're Sierra Leone. They're the, the uh, you know, a very particular tribe. And, and he's, I said, can I put that in the book? And he said, oh, please do. You know, so that was, that was wonderful and rich. Um, and then I had an opportunity to, to meet also with another historian here. And again, it was totally intimidating. He had just retired as like professor of, you know, South Carolina history. And he'd written the big books, like the big three volume history of, of this part of South Carolina. And same thing, the agent said, Dr. Roland needs to read that. And I said, oh, no, no, he's a historian. <laughs> he's going to slice it and dice it. Um, but he, he really appreciated it. He gave me some great feedback. He loved the, the story. Um, so those were, those were really key pieces of the research. But back to your question, a lot of the research for me was being in the place and um, here in, both here in Beaufort and in Charleston and just getting a feel for the water, how the tides work. I was never around water when I was in Texas, you know, how the, how the tides work and how, how people have to navigate these interesting waterways. Um, the things that grow, the things people ate and the things that, you know, the way work happened and the way people were treated and, you know, all the, the heartbreaking stories and the, the rich stories of the land itself. Um, you know, I just, I kind of had to just soak all that up. That was a huge part of the research for me. And that's, I hear you mention a lot about being intimidated and yeah. this was all brand new for you. And I know a lot of people deal with imposter syndrome. I most certainly and probably somewhere at the top of that list. How'd you overcome that as you were writing this book and just taking this on? You know, it, it was... It was slow and it was an interesting process because it early on, I thought, I wonder if I can even write a book. And, um, you know, I loved reading and writing in school and, and I loved it so much that in high school, I, I just soaked it up. I went to college, I didn't know what I was gonna do. And so I, so I took sort of the most efficient path, which means I, I tested out of all my English classes. I never took another English class. The thing that I loved the most. <laughs> which is crazy. Those should have been your easy A's. Right. I should have just enjoyed it, but I, I was being efficient getting through school. Um, so I didn't know if I could write and I, you know, I Googled, how do you write a book? I found <laughs> workshops. I, you know, I kind of, I, there's a lot, there are a lot of great resources out there if you, for anything that anyone wants to learn, as you know. So I found, online tutorials and I found workshops that I could go to. And so I'd, I did a lot of that. And so I was around people who were writing and that was in some ways intimidating, but it, over time I thought, well, I can do what they're doing. You know, I can put a sentence together and string another one to it. Um, so, so the process of writing became far less intimidating early on. The, the part that the, the real shift for me and probably the the thing that really kind of changed my life in some ways in big ways is that I 
I began to question whether or not I had a right to tell the story. Um, because I, I do think there's so much value in um, original voices and representation. And so that, those questions were at the back of my mind, who am I to tell the story? You know, who am I to tell the story? Who, you know, I'm this sort of older, privileged, literate white woman in this century trying to tell the story of this young enslaved black man from a long time ago. And so I just thought, I mean, those are so many distances to bridge, you know, yeah. race, gender, time, geography, experience. I mean, they're all huge. Um, but I also, I knew then, and I began to really think about how we learn about other people's experiences. And we do that by hearing and reading stories. I mean, that's the, that's the old biblical process, you know, the, the stories, we hear the stories and, and the stories tell us who we are and who other people are and how we got where we are and who we might be, you know, they can be inspiring or they can be cautionary. And also begin to really recognize that it's in, it's in story that we learn, or for me anyway, learn empathy and openness to experiences that are not our own, um, curiosity about experience in life that's not our own. And so very slowly over the process of this, that question, who am I to write the story kind of shifted and it was, it was fueled by the question of why don't we know the story? It shifted to who am I to not tell the story? Like who, like I'm, now I've heard the story and I've learned a lot about the story. Who am I to chicken out and not share the story? You know, yeah, it would have been bad to just to leave it out there, to take all that knowledge in yourself and go, I can't tell the story. So I'm just going to keep so many people right. from hearing it as yeah. well. Yeah, and but I mean, we sometimes we abandon really important callings because of fear, you know. And so I so I stuck with it, and it was it was. Um, I mean, those questions were with me a lot, and they really taught me, and they really helped me to open up and listen to a lot of people in a lot of important ways. But then what happened after the book came out? People who look like me begin reading the book. And they, and they wanted to hear about it and they wanted to know about it. And it kind of gave me this platform that I never expected to have a lot of hard conversations. I mean, challenging, hard for me, hard for the people I was in conversation with um, about, about the, our history for sure, but also our present. I was, I was with a yeah. book club in, um, East Texas of all places. And, um, and, you know, all white women about my age, they loved the book, they loved the story, they loved hearing about how I, you know, went from being a preacher to being a writer. Um, but one of the women said in, in absolute sincerity, she said, I'm so glad that all that's behind us, all that racism and all that hate. I'm so glad that's all that all that's behind us. And I said, let's talk about that. <laughs> I said, you know, we, those of us in this room, we don't get to declare the end of racism because we, we're not experiencing it. We don't know it. You know, we, 
we we observe and we are learning and we care. Hopefully, you know, we're trying to learn to be allies, but it's it's not our experience. We can't say that that it's all over. That's that's crazy. Yeah. The other thing that I that I found is a bunch of my conversations, especially in this part of the country in the South, people will say things like, and in the South, people are real sweet. Well now, honey, <laughs> you know, my my people, my ancestors. They had slaves, but they loved them like family. And I would say, let's talk about that. You know, how, how do we love people? How do families love people? You know, to, to uh, absolutely destroy family connections, to take away agency, you know, to, to take, take away humanity from someone. That's, that's not how you love family. So, Let's to give them the scraps. Those, what's that? To, to give them the scraps to right. sell and it, trade it, them at a yeah. win. Yeah. I mean the you know the 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 horror of slavery has been so at least in the South, and and I really think just everywhere. Um, it's been, some of us have been almost romanticized, you know, Gone with the Wind just did that to it and, oh, and yes. a bunch of other stories. And, and so, so now I've kind of thrown myself into the, <laughs> the, the fire of having these conversations that are, I'm, I'm the most non-confrontational person in the world. And so I'm having these really challenging conversations, but we have to have them. And I, I tell people, if we don't, if we don't know how we got here, we, we won't have a different future. We've got to have the conversations, and Robert Smalls. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Robert Smalls invited me to do that, and I didn't know that that's what he was doing. <laughs> I tell people all the time. Uh, I give a lot of talks about racial justice, about culture, about society, and I, I often find myself in rooms full of young white people, and I tell them there are conversations that need to be had with people in your circle where they won't hear it from me and you have to be the one. And I think you are, you are uniquely positioned to use your voice as an advocate in those spaces where my voice wouldn't be accepted. So thank you for speaking up and not just saying, Oh, you know, that's just East Texas for you or, you know, they're from a different generation. It's like, no, we, we have to have these conversations. Right. Yeah. You know, we, I think you're absolutely right. We're not going to have a different future if we can't confront both the past and the present. And with everything we're seeing right now in regards to the war on critical race theory, the big boogeyman, we're, we're literally scrubbing history again. Again. It's, mm-hmm. it's crazy. So with, you know, with all of this that's going on right now, have you received any pushback to the book? You know, I keep waiting for the horrible, terrible, scary review, and it hasn't happened. It hasn't happened, Good. and um, and I'm grateful for that. It, you know, it will happen because that happens, but it, it hasn't happened yet. Um, very little pushback, and and really the, you know, probably the the question that's not really even pushback is, you know, had who gave you permission to to write the story? You know, why why were you 
Uh, why did you feel like you had the authority to do that? And I, I shared what I shared with you. I, I certainly didn't feel any authority. I began to feel a responsibility. Um, I think the, the thing that, um, that continues to challenge me is the difficulty of the conversations. And because there is enormous passion in those that are trying to eliminate critical race theory, eliminate history as it happened. People who, um, and certainly in this part of the country, you know, people who are distraught about the removal of Confederate monuments and that sort of thing. Um, all those, all those kinds of angsts and conversations are wonderful opportunities to really have the hard, the hard, deep conversations. Um, and I feel like, like we're in a culture now where people, a lot, not all people, a lot of people really have trouble with deep conversations. You know, there's the, Oh yes. You know, I can, I can put two sentences up on Instagram or Twitter, but you know, get me engaged for an hour and a half and something that challenges me, you know, we're, we have a hesitancy to that. Um, and so it's, you know, for me, the work is about building relationships. Um, yeah. A couple of a school here, a school in a small district in, in Texas are incorporating the book now. And so it's giving, it's giving these students and teachers and hopefully families um, opportunity for, for long, you know, weeks long of conversation because they're taking it a bit at a time and a step at a time. They're getting uh, contextual information. They're getting, I was, I was really interested in, in the working on the book about the, the role of things like religion, you know, the various religious traditions, because those things, those very dynamics are still the, the noise around us. Um, you know, we need to we need to understand the context of of the cultural um, kind of that that real richly woven fabric of religion and economics and societal expectations and women's roles and all those things that preceded the story of Robert Smalls that move all the way to where we are now and that are still part of the big question of who, who do we want to be as a culture and as a people and as a country. So I'm, the challenges are huge. But I got to tell you, CJ, I think that, that when then we, you and I have a conversation like this, or when I have a conversation with, with teachers who are trying to get the book into the classroom, or you're having a conversation with, with young white students, you know, those are, those are where those bridges start being built. Yeah, and relationships are key. They are. They're key be committed because, yeah, but because you have to think about what what we're trying to do here is we're trying to have hard conversations. You don't have those conversations with strangers, right? Because so much gets misinterpreted. We we live in a world of tribalism, and all we do is dig our heels in further. But if I'm your friend, if I know you, if we've built a rapport together, then if I say something hard to you, you don't immediately go oh, that's the other side talking. Right. You go, no, that's my friend talking. Yeah, and if he's it. saying something to me, 
there's a reason for that. And maybe I can take it a little bit better or a little more in stride because I know the person that it's coming from. Exactly. I, I love that you're getting this book into, into schools. Uh, what, so I'm, I'm starting to do some training mm-hmm. for teachers on teaching Black history well. And I want to recommend this book as I do that. What grade would you say is optimal to start with this? So, um, so the, the group in Texas that is using it has it with their ninth grade advanced uh, language arts group. And they're doing kind of an integrated curriculum so that, you know, they get the history, the English, um, a lot of pieces together. Here in Beaufort, they did it in the high school. Um, and I think it was 11th grade. I w- I think, I don't think I would put it in the hands of students younger than ninth grade, probably just because there's some, you know, there, there's, it's not terribly graphic, but adult circumstances that, that not every eighth grade or not every yeah. middle school child is ready for. Um, but I, but I think if it's well facilitated, you know, if, if it's got great discussion questions and, and uh, projects built around it. So the kids are really digging in and learning. I think, I think it belongs in, you know, if we can't get stories like his and Tubman's and all these other stories into the history textbooks, let's give them something fun to read that, you know, that'll tell them the story. Seriously. I mean, it's a shame that he's not in the textbook, but yeah. this, this should be re- required reading. We've read Catcher in the Rye enough years in a row We've read Fahrenheit 451 enough years in a row. Yeah. Let's let's add some books to the rotation that are telling different stories. And this, Absolutely. to me, this is one of those books. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've got another one for you if you are looking for other um, other yes, books and please. authors to talk about. So um, a friend of mine, we read each other's manuscripts because our agent told us to. <laughs> then we became good friends. His name is Jeffrey Blunt. And he wrote a remarkable novel called The Emancipation of Evan Walls um, about education in the black community. And he's African-American in DC, but he he grew up in a world that made it hard to dig in as an academic. Um, And he tells the story and it's powerful. It's a remarkable story. I'll, I'll make sure to send you his contact information. Yeah, you said the emancipation of Evan Walls. Evan Walls. Uh-huh. I'm adding that to my ever-growing list of books to read now. It's it's a must. It's a must. Yeah, but this is this is what we have to do is we have to tell more stories. A part of the vision for Labor Forward is to get more books like this out there because we we have enough 800-page books on Martin Luther King and Frederick Douglass. But where's the book on A. Philip Randolph? Where's the book on Fannie Lou Hamer? Where's the book on Shirley Chisholm? Like I can keep Ida B. Wells. I mean, so many. Yes, so many, and yet we keep getting not just the same stories told, but sanitized versions of the same stories. Yeah. Like I, I heard Frederick Douglass's name growing up. I did not hear any of the vitriol and smoke he had for this country, and any of the readings I had about him. And that's a problem because you're not telling his story properly. We romanticize Martin Luther King, but we don't talk about how he was the most hated man in this country at the time of his death. 
right? Yeah, we have to we have to acknowledge acknowledge that you know it's true. We we know the truth, and the truth sets us free. And and that yeah. is that is true universally. That that what we know, what we comprehend, how we connect to the reality of, of our worlds with each other, you know, it, that's how we change. That's how we grow. That's how we learn. And I think there's a, another big important reason to tell these stories is that it gives little black boys and girls everywhere a vision for their future. You know, we, I always say kids grow up to become what they see. Yes. And if the only visions you're giving us is you can be an athlete or an entertainer, then why would we think that we could be authors of legislation? Why, like the person who made my childhood incredible was Lonnie Johnson. Lonnie Johnson is the man that invented the super soaker and the Nerf gun. It's a black man working for NASA and in, like invented these things. I should have known his story. Maybe I would have, I don't know if I would have wanted to be a scientist. I think I've always wanted to be a writer, but Maybe, you know, maybe I would have gone down that path or had that vision. So we, we need to hear these stories for that reason. And then I think for, for white kids, they need to hear these stories because you get things like the Proud Boys and the March in Charlottesville a few years ago where people are, are saying things like, oh, we built this country. We did this, we did that. And it's like, no, the traffic light was invented by a black man. Uh, women use use pads, right? Invented by a black woman, uh, Elizabeth Kenner, I believe her name was, and her invention wasn't adopted for thirty years. Think about how ubiquitous the tampon is. Not adopted for thirty years because the company that was interested took one look at her face, and they were like, "Oh, you're black." No, and it's like, no, we we need to know the contributions of black people to this country for so many reasons. And most of what yeah. we eat, most of what we eat, you know? Yeah. You want to talk about Southern food? Right. I went to college in North Carolina and my, on my father's side, my family's from the South. So I, I know what is in that food. I know the goodness that lives in that gravy. We have to know that it was the Geechees, the Gullahs, it was the enslaved folks of the South who made what we love today. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The stories, the stories have to be told and they have to be celebrated. And, um, you know, I just, I just, I, I feel like, I feel like small sort of opened this giant door for me. You know, I thought I was just getting on a carriage tour. <laughs> and it's now, amazing how life works like that sometimes, yeah, right? But everything looks different, you know, and I, um, we go to Charleston now and then, and I mean, this is, beautiful, charming town with great food and great architecture. But it was all on the backs of enslaved people. And I see it differently now. And I can appreciate it in a, in a different way and in not such a ain't this sweet kind of way. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, there's people's lives and stories and families and heartbreaks and losses, you know, that's all in these stories. Um, and knowing those things, as hard as they are, that knowing those things sort of, I think, kind of redeems our humanity. It restores our sense of, of what's at stake when we, when we fail to care for other people, whoever they are and whatever they're doing. If we, if we, if we just see people as, um, 
commodities, you know, whether they're working at Amazon or, you know, on the cotton steamer, we, we, we destroyed their sense, their, our sense of their humanity, but also our, our own experience of humanity. Yeah. We destroy our own humanity at the same time. When you treat people like property, whether that is in the 18th century or today, you're destroying something in yourself as well. Right. Right. All right. You, I think this, this is just what you do now. Are you, are you telling more stories? Are there more stories to come? I need to know. You know, I hope so. I hope so. We've had, um, and this last year and a half is, we have had just some, um, some sort of family losses and challenges and health issues. Sorry to hear that. Some things on the back burner. Um, but I'm, I'm itching to discover and tell more stories and, you know, to, to get this one out more deeply. I think, um, I think what you're doing CJ in terms of, of really, um, I don't know, you're doing it so proactively. I feel like what I'm doing is sort of can be kind of passive. I wait till a book club calls or till a school calls, but like you're going there and God bless you for it. I'm walking in the dark. I'm walking in the dark. (laughs) I've got my hands out and I'm I'm trying to find a way. (laughs) Yeah, really, really. I just seeing the growth that has happened with Labor Forward over the last year when this was really just a shot in the dark has been amazing. I mean, this is, it's how I connected with you. I posted about Robert Smalls. I think I used the hashtag and then right, you, okay. I think you, you messaged me or something and I was like, oh, wow, I would love to read your book. And you sent me a copy and I'm, I'm grateful for that because the, how else does that happen? Right. But this is, this is the beauty of, this is the beauty of technology. There's yes. definitely a dark side, but, yeah, yeah. but this is it, this is the beauty. It, it does have a, a real power for connecting if we use it well and wisely. So thank goodness for that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I am I'm hoping you tell more stories. I am hoping this book gets adopted in schools all across the country and eventually all across the world because a story like Robert Smalls, that's an international story. That's not just an American story. So thank yeah. you, it's, it's uh, Rebecca, story. please, yeah. 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 please tell the people where they can find you. So uh, rebeccabruff.com is my website. It's probably the easiest. Um, and that has all my, all my contact information. Uh, the book is wherever you get books. You know, I really encourage people to support their local independent bookstores, but you can go to the, the big online uh, providers as well. Um, and I should add, it's on audio now. Nice. And oh my goodness, here's another voice that you need to get on your, <laughs> on your list and on your podcast. So the narrator is a gentleman named Gerald C. Rivers. He's a voice actor in LA and stage actor and a drummer and all kinds of stuff. Um, he's a, he's a Morehouse man and he, um, he has spent, a couple of decades now reenacting Martin Luther King Jr. speeches and he brings the man to life. And so he goes to schools and churches and, um, you know, various events and, and shares the speeches and talks with listeners about the context, the big picture of the speeches. Anyway, he's the voice of Robert Smalls. He narrates the book and, um, 
I feel like we've become good friends, but we haven't met in person yet. You know, he's on one coast and I'm on the other. Yeah. Uh, but he just he just brought uh, the heart to it. A beautiful voice, deep heart. He about halfway through, he said, you know, this is this is a lot more emotional for me than I anticipated. So we talked about that and um, and he let that become kind of part of the story. And it's beautiful. So so if uh, if you have people that are more interested in in listening to a book and holding a copy in their hands, that's that's another way to experience it. Listen, whatever way we can get it into their hands, we will do that. Um, yeah. All right. What's before we go? What's one lesson you learned from Robert Small's life that you think everyone needs to know? The question I ask myself over and over and over that I think is an important question for people to ask, you know, so this is the thing I hope they know. I hope they know this question really matters. What am I willing to risk everything for? You know, Smalls risked, the way his grandson, great-grandson puts it, he risked everything he had for everything he hoped. Um, and so when I set out to write the book, I was knew I was taking a big risk. And then I thought, I'm not risking my life or my family's life, my children's lives like he did. Um, but the question began to live in me. What am I willing to risk everything for? What am I, what am I, what is so big that I'll just put it all out there? And, and justice, that's where I am. You know, the, the yeah. demand for courage, that's what he taught me, that, that the fortitude and the courage to do the impossible is worth it. That's he what he taught me. Everything he had for everything he hoped. That right there. Those are, those are enduring words that we can walk away with. Absolutely. Rebecca, thank you so much for coming on the kickback. Uh, follow her at Rebecca Buff, author on Instagram. Uh, get the book. This is seriously something you need to read. Rebecca, thank you so much. Thanks, CJ. Great to talk with you tonight. Appreciate it. Yeah.